Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Lu Zhang to talk about her new book, Inside China's Automobile Factories, The Politics of Labor and Worker Resistance. This came out with Cambridge University Press in 2015. Now, it's a rather extensive interview, so I'll keep this short, but I'll just say that this is a really interesting book for anybody um, with a deep and abiding interest in either labor relations and worker conditions more generally, or modern China specifically. So what Lu Zhang does is she takes us into seven large automobile assembly factories spread across a bunch of cities in China, and she opens up um, kind of a window into not just labor conditions, um, labor mobilization practices, but also the emergence of what she calls a labor force dualism, wherein there are actually kind of two tiers of workers in these factories, a more um, semi-permanent kind of regular set of workers, and then a large and growing class and a very um, hybrid kind of a class of temporary workers who include um, workers who get their jobs through temp agencies, students who are on internships, and a lot of other kinds of people who are often working full time, um, but not gaining any kind of job security as a result of that. So the result of this bipartite um, kind of dualistic labor structure is increasing um, worker unrest, but also really interesting opportunities to mobilize. So she takes us into a couple of different instances of worker strikes. Um, She talks about the kinds of grievances that emerge um, in these different communities of workers and the recourses that they have or not to deal with these grievances. And also, by the end of the book, point us forward to suggest some ways that this all might resolve or turn out in the years ahead. So it's really interesting, um, and I recommend it for anybody who's interested, again, in kind of labor politics, in histories of workers, or anybody who wants a kind of localized perspective on the kinds of um, conversations we've been having about labor um, and different sort of uh, structures of labor in the academy, um, which you'll hear by the end of the interview, um, she actually speaks to and she relates to this context in China. So thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoy and I'll see you soon. I'm here today to talk with Lu Zhang about her new book, Inside China's Automobile Factories. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Lu, and thanks very much for navigating the setting up process and for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Hi, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm very delighted to be here. So, Lou, uh, can you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by talking a little bit about how you came to the field, and specifically, what brought you to work on the sociology of China? Um, yeah, I was born and grew up in China uh, in the Reform era. So, my mother, um, she used to work at a state-owned textile printing dyeing factory when I was very young. 
and she would take me to work and put me in the daycare facility provided by the factory for its employees on site. So in a sense, I uh, kind of encountered the factory environment from very early on in my life. And um, so I be- became interested uh, in labor studies when I was an undergraduate student majoring in sociology at Fudan University in Shanghai. In my junior year, I got involved in a research project with one of my sociology professors on the life and work experience of migrant workers in Shanghai. Um, so we um, we were asked to um, observe to observe and talk to um, migrant workers uh, after witnessing the plight and the daily coping strategies of migrant workers in the flourishing metropolitan Shanghai. I can't help asking why there is persistent inequality and discrimination against certain individuals and groups in the labor markets and at work. Mm-hmm. So I went on to pursue a master's degree in comparative labor studies and social research methods at the Uni- uh, University of Warwick in UK, where I also began reading some classic works in industrial sociology and the labor uh, process theory under the Marxist tradition. Uh, after that, I decided to uh, further pursue my PhD in sociology at Johns Hopkins University in the United States, where some of the most uh, imaginative and engaging uh, Marxist and world system labor scholars enlightened me with a historical and a global approach to study labor and the labor moments. At, uh, um, so at, at Hopkins, I started doing research um, on the Chinese auto workers when studying labor unrest in the world automobile industry with Professor Beverly Saver. That led to my dissertation and eventually uh, this book. So I, I guess, um, yeah, it's kind of... Uh, um, is is a combination of my uh, family and, and also um, personal uh, growing experience. Great, thank you so much. Now, um, you, you've already introduced it a little bit, right? Um, the book is a study of labor resistance in automobile factories in China, and you've talked a little bit about how you came to the topic, and thank you for that. You've also mentioned that this began its life as a dissertation. So can you talk a little bit about that transition from dissertation to book? Were there any major transformations in the project, any major changes in the way you were thinking about your own um, process or methodology, or really kind of any notable elements for you about that transformation from one form to another? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, because I, I think um, for many of us, um, the first book uh, tend to be uh, really the, uh, from the dissertation. So uh, it has been a long process um, after you're working so many years on a subject. And sometimes you got lost uh, about uh, what most exciting uh, mm-hmm. thing at the beginning, like excited you to study the, the subject. Um, so when I um, doing the, um, so, I, I talked to a few editors about the subject, um, and um, they always the first first questions they ask me would be, um, so just give me uh, like a, a one or two sentence. What's the most exciting thing about the subject? Um, 
So I think the idea is the dissertation, uh, I try to detail everything I know about uh, what I studied and what my fieldwork. Uh, and I try to put um, to show that I really mastered the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but the book is to is is the book to for people to read, right? Uh, to appeal to the readers. Uh, and uh, what are some things that are really um, in in the way that um, have your own voice to tell the readers the story? Uh, and, and also in a uh, academic book in uh, in a systematic theoretical way. Uh, so the first thing, uh, the big difference between the dissertation and the book. Um, Yes, actually, I get rid uh, rid of the literature review chapter. Uh, uh, so the introduction um, become the kind of my fieldwork experience and what they spoke about, uh, and and also kind of inviting the readers to come along with me to explore uh, the inside life, of the, the factory life of the workers, uh, and to get inside uh, the automobile factories. Um, so I, I would say this is a um, transition transition that not only for from dissertation to a book, but also uh, for myself is from a graduate student to a scholar uh, that to to have your uh, independent voice and and also to have a outside angle to kind of get out of the box and to look at what this book. Uh, is really about and why it matters and and how I want to convey uh, what kind of message I want to convey through the book um, to a broader field and audience. Thank you. Really beautifully put. Thank you so much. So you talked a little bit about your fieldwork and the research for the book actually encompassed fieldwork um, in many senses, right? You talk about fieldwork on the shop floors of automobile factories, interviews, and also archival research. So for the book, um, you describe spending 20 months of ethnographic research inside seven large auto assembly factories in six different cities in China um, over a period between 2004 and 2011, spending at least two months in each factory. So this is a pretty substantial um, amount of ethnographic fieldwork. Now, you talk in the introduction about how you gained access to these factories um, in the first place. This is not something that's very easy to do, um, and I just mention this for listeners because um, this is a a really interesting part of the story itself. So could you talk a little bit about um, your experiences in getting access to these factories for us and also kind of what a typical day, if there was such a thing, right, um, Mm -hmm. on the factory floor may have been like for you? Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, gaining access um, to those large automobile factories is not easy. Um, as many of us um, who have done field work uh, in China, uh, it often requires a combination of personal connections, uh, right? You have to know somebody. Um, and, and also uh, the persistent efforts, um, just keep on trying um, and good luck. Uh, many times, uh, some, uh, it's, um, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty about uh, field work access. Um, so uh, I, I began my field work in uh, June 2004, uh, yeah, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, um, by getting access to a state-owned truck maker located in my hometown. Uh, my uncle, who was a good friend of a senior manager as a plant, uh, he helped me to secure access to the factory. 
So I was introduced to uh, manager manager Benjamin as a Chinese graduate student uh, who is studying in the United States and is doing field work for her dissertation on human capital and management in the Chinese auto industry. With hindsight, I realized the fact that I was introduced by a senior manager combined with the state purpose of my research led to the expectation among managers that my research would produce a positive outcome and be a potential benefit to the factory. Although um, this perception facilitated my access to and interviews with managers, it also caused a suspicion among workers such that it took me uh, quite a while to uh, gain their trust. Um, and so my initial request to work on the line uh, with ordinary workers was immediately turned down by management out of the consideration for my safety and the high physical demand involved in automobile production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and my small size um, and uh, uh, as a female researcher, uh, further justify such concerns. So instead, I was um, assigned to the uh, factory party committee office to help in collecting shop floor material and editing factory newsletters aimed at promoting model workers and advanced production teams to boast worker morale. So it's actually uh, very interesting um, to me that uh, all the factories I visited, uh, I studied, uh, whether those are state-owned factories or joint venture, they all have a factory party committee office uh, that um, have multiple functions, including editing newsletters and promoting this kind of workplace morale. Uh, so this position uh, allowed me to uh, hang around uh, shop floors uh, freely and talk to workers uh, when they were not working. But uh, I have to um, admit that uh, so this is that's why I didn't um, say that this is a participant observation because uh, I actually um, didn't have a chance to uh, to work as a fa- uh, as a worker online. So it's so it's. Uh, it's up observations, but it's not participant observations. Um, but uh, I, I did got uh, the first-hand uh, kind of insight about how uh, the factory work is organized, how the uh, daily uh, life is like. So I'm going to get to that uh, in a minute. Uh, just to um, finish a kind of a, how I get workers trust this process. Um, so... At the beginning, workers um, were both suspicious and curious about my presence on the shop floor. They either um, refrained from talking to me or asked me a lot of questions about myself and my dissertation project uh, before I could even ask them any questions. I had to constantly explain my research goals and um, reassure workers that I was neither hired uh, nor paid by uh, management. I could tell that um, the workers were puzzled and amazed by the fact that I, um, a young female graduate student who grew up locally, 
mm-hmm. and went abroad to pursue a PhD in sociology. Uh, would choose to spend months uh, um, in the factory trying to uh, write about Chinese auto workers and their everyday work life. Mm-hmm. So I remember um, a question uh, I often received uh, was, uh, "What uh, are there anything interesting?" Uh, so like workers would say, "谁会感兴趣中国工人的那个生活？就是说, uh, who cares about uh, workers' life?" Uh, Nothing interesting about, um, but um, so but uh, as time went by, um, some workers began talking to me. Uh, as one worker later told me, uh, they started to see me as a sincere and hardworking student who would like to listen to their trivial stories and complain for hours uh, with great interest. And I can also feel um, the kind of appre- appreciation. Um, from workers that uh, when someone really care about their um, uh, life, their story, and uh, and really pay attention, listen to them, um, that um, kind of uh, mm, can feel this kind of mutual, um, over time, this, um, this mutual um, trust gradually uh, when, uh, it's, yeah, it's actually very uh, kind of to me that once, um, Workers open up to; they will tell you a lot of things, and so I gradually gained their trust. Um, at the time, um, at the same time, so by relying on this kind of a semi-structured interview techniques uh, with a sympathetic and a patient ear, I was able to establish a rapport with workers and get them to open up and to share with me their stories, aspirations, and emotions. So, yeah, so um, for about two, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 I I was going to say, uh, uh, no, go on, please. Yeah, okay. So for about two months, two months uh, from uh, June 2004 and September 2006, I went to work uh, as a state-owned truck factory every day. A typical day uh, started from the nine, uh, from nine, uh, nine, uh, sorry, seven thirty a.m. Uh, pre-shift work group meeting, and getting off at six p.m. with the day shift workers. Uh, there were also nine shift uh, workers, um, but um, uh, I uh, pretty much did um, the day shift uh, because I was uh, working for the party. Uh, a factory party committee office. Um, so their regular working hours is pretty much um, the, the daytime. So I observed uh, how production was organized. So uh, 7.30, uh, the meeting uh, lasts uh, 15 minutes, uh, 10 to 15 minutes, and then uh, workers uh, would uh, prepare, set up the tours, prepare for uh, the production um the uh, production started um, at 8, 8 a.m. Uh, sharp, uh, and and then um, during there was a ten minutes break in the morning, uh, maybe around ten thirty, uh, and then uh, there's a half an hour lunch break uh, between twelve and twelve thirty. Uh, there was another ten to fifteen minutes break uh, in the afternoon uh, until. Uh, the day shift uh, was over at 6 p.m. So it it, it, uh, it was a long day. So, um, and um, so I 
I got um, so basically um, I I got to um, observe how production was organized, what the working condition were, how people interacted with one another, and what kind of exchange took place on a daily basis. Uh, for example, um, you know. Uh, as I talk in in the in the book, there was a lot of like after bargaining and and kind of uh, also workers trying to beat uh, uh, speed up uh, beat up the lines, you know, kind of the game doing some. So I I uh, was able to um, get um, those um, from uh, hanging around the shop floor and also talk to workers. Uh, I also uh, add in the factory cafeteria with workers. And visited um, their dormitories uh, at home after work. Um, I rarely use a tape recorder because I notice it tend to make people feel nervous uh, and uh, self-conscious while talking to me if I uh, use a recorder, uh, except for formal speeches given by factory leaders on a few occasions. Uh, so um, for researchers, um, I have to. Uh, I had to rely on. Um, so I, I wrote down the daily work routines that I consider meaningful while observing them or immediately afterwards, uh, such as pre-shift work uh, group meetings held by team leaders and workers' conversations during work breaks and lunch time. So I um, and also uh, I typed down uh, everything. Um, every night after the work so that uh, try to as accurate as possible. Um, I also collected relevant factory files, uh, including uh, statistics on production employees, work rules and regulations and internal newsletters and references. Mm-hmm. Um, so the really interesting thing, um, or one of the really interesting things about the book is that these are very detailed um, experiences at the level of individual um, bodily you know, participation, at least in the life of the factory and the workers, allowed you to step out and make some really broad and really, I think, interesting arguments about labor practice and about the Chinese state more generally. So I'll just kind of set the stage a little bit and bring us into that, and then we can work our way through some of the chapters. So the book argues that widespread grassroots protests among auto workers in China have succeeded on some level. And this is important to note because this is actually in contradistinction to what some other studies have suggested. So these protests have won workers' wage increases and improved conditions on the shop floor, among other things. Now, despite the fact that labor unrest is localized and um, arguably apolitical, it's nonetheless, as you show in the book, pressured the government into enacting new labor laws and policy changes. And as we get through um, to the later parts of the book, we'll talk about some of those policy changes. Now, the book explores an underlying contradiction between two kinds of forces, what you call legitimacy and profitability, um, characterizing capitalist development. Put another way, Attempts to resolve a crisis of profitability can tend to create or to exacerbate, as you put it, a crisis of social legitimacy and vice versa. Okay, so then you, from by after laying this out, you take us into the basic context of the growth of China's auto industry in the past 20 years. So I'm just going to lay this out super quickly so that listeners have a context within which to um, situate what's going to come next. 
So we see um, over the past 20 years massive foreign investment and an increased scale and concentration of work. Um, there's a creation of a new generation of auto workers um, with increased bargaining power that comes along with this. There's also now the entering of China into a global competition in the mass production of autos at a stage when that global competition was actually really, really high and profit margins were really, really narrow. As a consequence, the state restructured industry and increased competition since the late 1990s. And this forced Chinese auto automakers to move toward what you call a leaner and meaner work regime. And the result for auto workers has meant increased intensity of work, reduced job security, stagnant wages, a lack of opportunities for advancement, and an inferior status in a very hierarchical factory social order. So that's basically um, just to kind of set the stage. And this, the first and the second chapter really lay this out really beautifully. Now, integral to understanding this and integral to understanding the arguments of the book is the notion of labor force dualism. And this is where I'm going to hit the ball back to you, Lou. So you you talk a lot about the emergence of labor force dualism as a central component of labor relations in lots of large capital intensive enterprises since the early to mid 2000s. And this sort of labor dualism is absolutely central to understand um, everything that's going on in the book. So with that... Can you talk about labor force dualism in the context of um, auto workers? Um, what is it? What are the different uh, levels of labor, and why is this so important for us to understand? Yeah, thank you for the excellent question uh, and for the um, great um, kind of layout uh, of the book. Um, I think you really got the kind of the key um, uh, to to like my central uh, kind of uh, questions uh, I try to address. Um, so um, this labor force dualism uh, is one of the key mechanisms discussed in the book. Um, and by labor force dualism, I refer to a labor control strategy that draws boundaries between formal regular workers and temporary workers. Uh, by this term, I refer to a late uh, this control mechanism that de- uh, deploys formal and temporary workers side by side on production lines, uh, having them perform similar or identical tasks, uh, but subjecting them to different treatment. Formal workers uh, have higher wages, better benefits, and relatively uh, secure employment as part of the management efforts uh, to gain their cooperation. In contrast, Temporary workers have lower wages, uh, fewer benefits, and little job security. Uh, as students of China uh, labor and, and uh, more generally know, uh, this is not something uh, new, quite new to um, uh, We know that uh, this kind of using uh, the treating workers, different group workers uh, different, uh, uh, differently uh, and joint boundaries among workers uh, is a consistent strategy. Um, both in under capitalism uh, and also in uh, under socialism. Uh, in so Andrew Wilder um, and also um, uh, it is is Perry have been talking about this uh, fragmentation and divisions within workers, uh, and and we know the state-owned companies uh, had the practice uh, in the uh, more area uh, under state socialism by using temporary workers as well. So. Uh, 
in in part that uh, I'm actually um, try to trace this continuity and the change in terms of, like the labor force dualism, but also I'm I'm engaging with this uh, larger debate in the field that that uh, that to understand this dialectic relations between worker solidarity and intra-class divisions within the working class, and as well as its boundary drawing strategy by the state, by capitalist, and, and sometimes by workers themselves, uh, this kind of intertwined dynamics of class-based and status-based mobilization, uh, or we say movements and the counter-movements. Um, so that's just a kind of a theoretical um Background, but get back to this dualism uh, uh, more specifically. Um, so, um, this dualism in the auto industry was introduced uh, in the 1990s as a solution to lowering uh, cost and increase flexibility uh, by hiring tabs, at the same time, trying to gain constant and a cooperation from former workers. Uh, and there's this um, background that you have just uh, mentioned to the readers uh, with the competition increased um, and the profitability um, uh, becomes thinner and there's a drive towards uh, meaner and leaner workplace. Uh, but at the same time, um, the, the industry still um, uh, under the state and the state has more intervention uh, in the auto assembly sector. So uh, there there is requirement for management to keep a peaceful and a cooperative workforce. So that's, that's why you see this tension between profitability and legitimacy, uh, particular accurate in this uh, particular this large uh, auto assembling factories. Mm-hmm. However, um, this dualism uh, carries notable unintended consequences. Uh, for one, the management constructed divide, division among workers has become a continuous source of irritation and impetus for a new generation of temporary workers who are increasingly urban and better educated to protest against unequal treatment. Uh, To the extent that assembling plants are able to provide job security at relatively higher wages for core labor force, they push down job insecurity and the cost-cutting measures, either to uh, their part suppliers, like part workers, right, part workers, or by constructing uh, this dualism within uh, the assembling plants. So, so um, as a result, it's, uh, it's not a coincidence that the main source of militancy has so far uh, resided among part workers in the subcontracting system and among temporary workers in the assembling plants. But but under this highly integrated just-in-time production system, the strikes uh, as at part suppliers and by temporary workers, they can effectively shut down the assembling plants and the entire production chain, as we see in the case of a 2010 auto parts worker strikes uh, that have received wide attention uh, and publicity. Um, so, this is the paradox of labor force dualism. Mm-hmm. So I argue the key question concerning the outcome uh, depends on whether a former and temporary workers are able to make a common cause or they end up fighting against each other uh, as 
what we see in the Korea uh, case, the uh, the case I mentioned in Chapter Six, uh, compared to the labor force dualism, uh, what they call the two tier system uh, in the South Korea auto uh, industry uh, auto sector, um, and, and this is conditioned in large measure on how management and the state respond. Um, so. Right. I, thank you so much. I mean, and the, a lot of the book really goes into the intricacies and the details um, of this labor force dualism and introduces us to what are actually some unusual and in some cases very heterogeneous groups of people that fall under these categories of, on the one hand, a formal worker and a temp worker. So as you show in chapter three, um, a so you talk about the ways that a typical formal worker and a typical temporary worker might get their job um, and might get a position at an auto factory. And it turns out that a lot of what we might assume about a typical formal worker turns out to be much more complicated. On the one hand, um, they're a very, very diverse group. And even though there's a popular assumption about formal workers in this case, that they're affluent and contented, you show here that actually many report feeling underpaid. So there's this kind of growing discontentment among for, uh, formal workers. Also, if we look at temp workers, there's another really interesting set of changes you're pointing out here in this chapter, um, insofar as there's what you call a flexibilization of this labor system, insofar as um, this, there's uh, more and more temp workers being culled from the population of student interns. So student internships as a result of you know, vocation and technical education system and work-study programs within the VOTEC system in China are being used as part of the full-time labor force. And also there's a lot of temp agencies um, that are contributing workers to this temp uh, worker pool. So it's a really interesting um, transformation of both of these categories that you're showing over the course of this chapter. Now, as we move into um, the later chapters of the book and into chapter four, you're showing us um, in chapter four kind of transformations in factory conditions that have helped bring about some of the unrest that you describe in detail in the later chapters. Now, you show here that what you call a Taylorist Fordist mass production system has become used and has become sort of put into general use in China's auto factory. So for listeners who aren't familiar with that way of describing a production system, can you take us into briefly um, what you mean here by a Taylorist Fordist mass production system and what the most important consequences of that approach to mass production have been for workers um, working in this system? Taylorist Fordist mass assembling production system, as we we know that is typically uh, associated with automobile industry uh, in start from the early uh, 20th century uh, and 19, through the, uh, the rise of uh, the Fordism, uh, like the 1930s and 40s. So um, this um, is essentially a mass assembling industry per excellence, that meaning that using the time, uh, for the tailor, using the time motion study uh, and to divide uh, workers' uh, motion um, and to scale um, that. Uh, so everyone, uh, every worker just repeat one single uh, uh, task mm -hmm. and, and repeat again and again, uh, but by divide uh, different, so, so you actually... Um, 
kind of making a human being as a machine, right? You just repeat one one, one motion. Uh, and for just um, using this mass assembling line uh, to have a, a large scale, uh, but usually um, the less diversified, uh, like to standardized assembling line, right? Um, uh, and so, so that you have the uh, capital, can you can invest uh, capital intensive and assembly land and produce a large amount uh, product. So to produce the scale of the economy, uh, that's the idea. So mass production and, and also Fordism has this meaning about the mass consumption, right? So you have the five dollar day um, that kind of a, the Ford creation to have this um, uh, working class become middle class and also, uh, so it, it has a lot of meaning, but just talk about the, the technical term about um, Taylorist Ford's mass uh, assembly production, that's pretty much uh, is associated with, um, start, uh, consider the um, Skills economy, assembly line, uh, and, and uh, also uh, less flexibility. Mm-hmm. So it's very rigid. Uh, however, uh, since 1960s, 1970s, the Japanese automakers uh, uh, kind of pioneered this just in time uh, production, um, some call it lean production. Uh, as uh, we know, it, it's become kind of a, a, a trend or uh, fee, um, since 1970, 1980s. Um, so today, uh, a typical automobile assembling plants, uh, we will, we will not say that, uh, have a, a large amount stocks build up. Uh, instead you will say that kind of to minimize inventory, uh, to minimize, uh, uh stock up, uh, but to, uh, have this, uh, just in time delivery system, uh, and also have a flexible line that can produce multiple models, um, and so that you can uh, satisfy the consumer's diverse demand. So uh, the idea is to uh, maximize efficiency uh, at the same time to make it more flexible, um, and so the, um, to reduce the waste. So the central idea of lean production is to reduce waste uh, maximize efficiency. So the combination, uh, however, um, as I made it uh, clear, um, so I I don't think lean production is a fundamental kind of departure from the uh, mass production for this uh, mass production uh, regime because it's still based on this uh, large scales of the economy. You have the uh, mass output, right? Um, you also uh, utilize uh, standard standardization. Um, this method from Taylorist for this uh, regime, uh, but at the same time, try to make it more flexible um, uh, and uh, make it more efficiency. So that's what um, I call the just-in-time mass production. Um, um, and the chapter actually talks about the consequences, right, of this for the workers. And these include long working hours, excessive overtime, intense pace, heavy workloads. And really, and you also talk about um, the kind of lack, the, the functional lack or um, small 
opportunities for blue-collar workers to actually move up in status in a big auto factory. So all of these collectively produce major worker discontent, and this is something that we see playing out um, in the next chapters. So chapter five focuses on, within this dual labor system, the formal workers, right? And then chapter, chapter five is going to look at the formal workers. Chapter six is going to look at the temporary workers. So in chapter five, you bring us into the ways that formal workers deal with managerial control and deal with um, their discontent. Now, when they are dissatisfied, um, most formal workers, as you show here, don't resort to group coping strategies. They resort instead to individual coping strategies. And you talk about some of the individual coping strategies that they're resorting to over the course of this chapter. Now, there's growing discontent among them. Um, and you show here that um, they're not just um, eating this up, right? I mean, they're not just kind of resting on their laurels. They're not just creating an environment of consent, um, which is the way um, their approach to dissatisfaction has been painted in um, some previous work. Instead, you argue that the current state of formal workers is not consent, but instead is something that you call negotiated compliance. So can you um, introduce that idea briefly for us? What is negotiated compliance and what's important for us to understand here in order to understand the argument you're making about um, the formal workers in this chapter? Yeah, um, and that's, yeah, this is a great question. So um, as as you mentioned, um, yeah, the, the uh, idea is, uh, you know, the workers, especially formal workers in the auto industry, they have higher pay, right? Uh, and they have relative job security. So, um, and, and also um, there was not uh, many reports about um, worker um, unrest until um, in the auto sector until 2010. So people would assume that, you know, they pretty much they are content, right? And so there's some consent uh, among the workers, uh, former workers. Uh, however, um, so when I got inside the factory, I noticed that uh, workers, um, they they are actually quite uh, aware about what um, is said in the official manager ideology and what is the reality on the shop floor. Um, but because there are different um First of all, there is a lack of a formal channel, uh, such as a uni, right? Uh, the independent uni for them to um, e- uh, bargaining or to express their grievances. So some of them resort to um, individual uh, strategies uh, and some using this kind of a, uh, everyday forms of resistance uh, through effort bargaining, through um uh, different uh, kind of uh, uh, disruptive uh, ways. Um, and in extreme cases, there's uh, strikes. But uh, the idea that negotiated compliance uh, is uh, from this um, James Scott uh, when he studied um, the peasants, um, uh, the everyday forms resistance, he noticed that um, this concept of hegemony uh, that derived from the Italian Marxist uh, Antonio uh, 
Gramsci emphasizes the ideological power of the ruling class to establish and maintain its dominance by persuading uh, the subordinate classes to accept its own worldview and values as common sense. So, um, it, therefore, they can elicit elicit this spontaneous consent, right? Uh, but uh, instead, um, he he argued also. Um, so, my my fieldwork actually confirmed that uh, actually the subordinate class uh, they can interpret. Uh, they use the official language or the dominant ideology uh, to advance their demand, um, their need, or to uh, minimize the negative effects on their daily life. Um, but they don't through uh, they don't do that through uh, openly confrontation. Instead, they use the language. They use the kind of the uh, legitimate way or channel, right, um, to try to um, turn this around uh, in their, uh, uh, for, for their um, benefits. So that's uh, when the idea about uh, this legitimacy leverage and uh, this negotiated compliance, uh, so the kind of reality led me to this concept that I think uh, I feel this is a more accurate way to capture uh, what is really going on on the shop floor. So it's not like workers don't know or they are um, kind of false consciousness, but rather um, they u- utilize a, a legitimate way uh, promoted by the dominant class, uh, in this case by management, to uh, minimize the negative effects and to advance their demand uh, through those uh, language and through those uh, symbolic raw material. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. So the whereas Chapter 5 focuses on formal workers and looks at the ways that they're mostly using individual coping strategies, when we turn to Chapter 6 and we turn to the temporary workers, we see rising labor activism here and rising mass movements among temporary workers. So Chapter 6 looks specifically at struggles of temp workers against unequal treatment and against what you call arbitrary management control. Now, they have demonstrated a rising activism, in part thanks to a few factors that you lay out in the chapter. So there's a changing social composition, for example. You've already alluded earlier in our conversation to the rising urban nature of temporary um, workers. They're increasingly urban. They often live together in dorms, and they're very active on social media. And so they're able to use social media to mobilize. Um, As a result of this, you show us that there's more and more opportunity to effectively um, sort of rise up and um, be activists and argue for better treatment um, in cases where, for example, they fail to get paid on time, they have less pay than formal workers, they perceive themselves to have a lack of um, proper training or opportunities to advance, etc. Now, for you... um, Uh, In thinking about these temporary workers and thinking about um, the experiences of labor activism among them that you witnessed when you were there for your fieldwork, what for you are some of your most 
um, trenchant or so, some of your most powerful memories of working with and talking to these temporary workers um, in the midst of talking to them about their concerns and how they were dealing with them through these activist channels. So for you, put another way, what stands out to you most powerfully um, in terms of your memories of these temporary workers? Yeah, um, I think uh, it first struck me about um, there, as I um, detail in the chapter, um, there was uh, there were a lot of student intern workers uh, who were uh, very uh, young and uh, in already in their eighteens uh, and nineteens, right? And, and so um, they stay in the dorms, uh, but uh, so you can. Like from uh, the June strike and October strike, I uh, described um, there is kind of a the process of developing and learning is a process um, of protesting. Um, at the beginning, you can feel that um, it's kind of a, the feelings about powerless. Uh, there, there are discussion about uh, being a temp workers uh, and being treated unequally, uh, but it seems that there was nothing uh, you can really change uh, as. A, you have no job security, right? Uh, and uh, uh, you can be easily replaced. Um, so this feeling about um, uh, powerless, uh, you, I, I can um, hear uh, and from the uh, conversations. However, um, at the same time, uh, you can also just kind of a, the gradual develop uh, development of the consciousness from their daily work experience. They notice that uh, with such large number of temporary workers, like two thirds, right, uh, in, in one group, and uh, if temporary workers stop working, they can shut the uh, whole production line down. Um, so, so th- there is a gradual transition process. As I, um, I, uh, I'm around the workers, and and I can I gradually see this kind of idea about the, the class. Uh, Consciousness developed at the point of production. But at the same time, you can also see this uh, uh, individual sentiments and also these um, uh, divisions among workers between temporary workers and, and formal workers. And sometimes the relationship is very complicated. It's not just about the worker brothers. It's also about uh, one group against another group, right? So um, that's where kind of a complicated multi-dimensional uh, 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 nature about this group, uh, intra-group relationship. Uh, and, and also I kind of, uh, uh, the when the first, uh, the discount the by workers uh, from their strike experience, for example, I remember um, I have the interview post about um, the student worker strike. Uh, they talk about their feelings, their transformation before strike and after strike. Uh, uh, as High and Lei reflected, it used to be you went to work, work hard through your life, went back to your dorm to sleep, and got back to work again. When you did not receive your paycheck on time, or only end half of those former workers for the same work, you just thought there was nothing you could do about it. But suddenly, you realize that you could actually achieve something by coming together and acting together. And the other worker, um, student worker, uh, said, 
at that moment of the strike, you feel you feel like we are all staying together. We are all supporting each other. You realize at least I'm not alone. That makes you feel stronger. It's a great feeling. So um, those kind of uh, um, that consciousness that um, transition uh, was ha- uh, happening through the collective actions, through this kind of uh, uh, when workers coming together. Um, so, um, but, so for me, it's, it's um, kind of a um, very striking also to to watch this process and uh, to be um, kind of a witness about um, the development uh, of the workers' um, consci- consciousness as well. Uh, Thank you so much. Now, as we move, um, did, was there anything else you wanted to add? I'm sorry. Well, we can, yeah, we can uh, move forward. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. we can move forward. So um, when we, as we move into Chapter 7, you take us into a story about the broader national political context, and this is also the last body chapter before the conclusion. Now, three new labor laws were passed in China by the National People's Congress Standing Committee in 2007, and the most important of these labor laws was something called the Labor Contract Law. Now, you take us into the details of the nature of the law and the forces behind making this labor law in this chapter. Um, can you maybe, as a, just a brief window in to understanding this law, talk a little bit about, um, for you, what was the most important impact or impacts of this law on management decisions and on labor practice um, at the level of the firm or at the level of the factory? Yeah. So um, the labor contract law uh, is a is a very important law. Um, the it, uh, so first of all, uh, it come to stabilize the labor relations to provide uh, from the state uh, policy point to provide protection, more protection uh, for workers uh, based on the written legal contract. So it uh, mandates. Uh, mandates that employers have to uh, have the written contract with workers, right? And the contract, uh, so in, in the in the sense that we can consider that in uh, pre previous period without um, this, even though the labor law passed in 1994 uh, is a is a big advancement, but. Uh, there are a lot of workers don't even have a contract, have, don't have even written, uh, written contract. Uh, that make when uh, make it very difficult for workers to uh, demand uh, compensation and have, have their legal rights uh, when there's a big dispute. Um, so the labor contract law uh, is a way to try to stabilize re- uh, labor relations, uh, also to pacify uh, discontent workers uh, by providing uh, more uh, protection for workers who have a formal contract, right, have the written contract. Uh, it also provides more job security um, for contract workers in the sense that uh, it requires that um, it states that workers can have the right to demand for uh, unfixed labor contracts after two renewals, meaning that uh, those workers uh, can have the uh, 
what we hear we call the job tenure, right? After they have a uh, renew their contract twice. Uh, so previously, this uh, is not uh, in the labor con- in the labor law in the uh, 1994 labor law. Uh, workers can request uh, for the unfixed. Uh, labor contract after 10 years service. Uh, but uh, this time is make it, uh, uh, but it's, it's not, uh, employers ha- uh, do not have to, uh, but the labor contract law make it clear that um, uh, after two times renewal, uh, workers are entitled, uh, they can request for this uh, 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 unlimited, uh, fixed labor contract. But that that uh, the direct consequence of that uh, specific uh, clause uh, means for management, they will give their former workers more job security, uh, and it becomes more difficult to fire former uh, contract workers mm-hmm. uh, under this new labor contract law. Uh, so as, as a direct consequence, um, while one one of the consequences of the labor contract law is after it was uh, implemented, uh, the number of temporary agency workers uh, is more than doubled, right? Uh, in part because the labor contract law gave more protection to the formal contract workers, but it is still allowed uh, employers to use temporary agency workers, uh, which, uh, as I uh, discussed in the chapter, is also kind of a negotiation and a bargaining between the lawmakers uh, and the um, business uh, or employer uh, rep- interest uh, as well as uh, considers the labor uh, neighbors interested in this case is a state um, uh, trade unions or, or China, ACFTU or Federation of China uh, workers. Um, so that uh, leads to my kind of a, one of the pr- prediction in the conclusion is uh, we sort of see this entrenched dualism that uh, have management uh, to use more temporary agency workers um, after the labor control law was implemented. However, uh, this is not the end of the story because um, there. Uh, there is a new regulation on the labor dispatch, uh, the temporary agency uh, work, try to give more protection to temporary workers, uh, as, as discussed. And so um, this is going to be the final uh, outcome is still remain to be seen, uh, but we can see this dynamics of dualism uh, still playing uh, and the dy- dynamics of boundary drawing by the state uh, is also evident in this chapter. Um by using the uh, labor laws and the policies uh, to give different kind of differentiation treatment uh, among different groups of workers. Great. Well, thank you so much, Lou. I think this is a perfect place for us to come to our conclusion. So as you just mentioned, there is also a conclusion, and you let us a little bit into it. Um, and this conclusion considers possible future scenarios of Chinese auto labor relations. And so I'll just mark that for listeners. We won't really have time to get into it, um, but you've already spoken a little bit about it. And for listeners who are interested in um, figuring out how 
to take these insights that you've given us and think about um, how to predict possible futures and perhaps how to influence and shape potential um, policy decisions. The conclusion is the place um, to look for that. So, Lou, um, we've talked about a lot of the book, um, and thank you so much for that. There's, of course, a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to get to. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention, um, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Uh, yeah, we have covered a lot. Uh, I think um, one thing I want to mention um, that also related to the central uh kind of um, essential theme of this dualism uh, I want to touch upon is um, that today, um, if we look around, we see that workers everywhere have been confronted with this growing job insecurity and inequality between a shrinking segment of core regular workers and an ever-expanding population of uh, precarious non-regular workers. Uh, a telling example is that we can see the widespread two-tier system in almost every sector, including the higher education, uh, where faculty members are divided between tenure, tenure-track professors, and non-tenure-track adjuncts and part-time lectures. Um, so um, I consider a central question for the 21st century labor movements will be the question of finding common ground and building solidarity among workers to struggle for a more just, equitable, and inclusive world, both in the workplace and within our society, uh, in the realm of legal, political, and social rights, targeting as a state. Um, and, and also, I, I want to mention that um, by giving voice to workers, uh, I hope to capture this complexity and multi-dimension nature of working class consciousness and the subjectivity. And in many cases, their resistance and actions are not just uh, a way of trying to improving wages and working conditions, although those are important uh, goals, uh, but also a way of gaining a sense of dignity and uh, respect at work. Uh, and that is a goal that uh, all the working people across uh, countries, across cultures, um, they have been struggling for, they have been uh, 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 what we consider uh, a just and democratic uh, workplace. Uh, so I think that uh, is a goal that uh, deserves everybody to fight for. Great. Thank you so much. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on that, what's next for you? What project is currently occupying you? Uh, yeah, so I'm currently uh, working on my second book project that examines uh, the interplay between capital mobility, uh, labor politics, and local development through a detailed comparative case study of geographic relocation and expansion of two electronic uh, multinationals from the Yangtze River Delta to the West China, particular Chengdu and Chongqing, and, and also to uh, Vietnam. Uh, so in particular, I investigate uh, how our firm's relocation decision informed by labor factors, such as cost, uh, worker skills, and education levels, uh, labor market conditions, regulations, and also local cultures. Uh, so what role do central and local governments and the unions play 
in companies' relocation decisions and process. Um, and um, another question, the third question is, how does management choose to organize production uh, and control secure workers' commitment, uh, both in the factory uh, as well as in the local communities? So um, I'm a uh, uh, doing field work, I'm still in the field work stage, uh, and I complete uh, uh, two sites um, last summer uh, and um, also this past uh, past fall. So uh, I'm still having uh, I still working on the remaining three factories. Um, so hopefully uh, I will get uh, the field work done and also the book uh, the draft writing in the next, uh, I would consider maybe two or three years. Wow. Yeah. Well, best of luck with that work. And thanks again for making time, Lou. It was a pleasure and congratulations on a great book. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.